From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, bank shutdowns, rescues, what's going on in the U.S. economy. And later, U.S. veterans of the Iraq War 20 years after talk about their service and war's legacy. Mira Enos, now unlucky Hank on her road in film and theater, a new top dog in American households, and Anne Napolitano on her new novel, Hello Beautiful, a close family lets resentments and rivalries span generations. I think the fault lines that run through our parents often run into us, even if we weren't alive when those fault lines were created. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, March 18, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Wyoming Republican Governor Mark Gordon has signed legislation outlawing medication abortion. Wyoming Public Radio's Caitlin Tan reports a move adds momentum to a push by Republican-led states and anti-abortion groups. Anyone found violating the law could get a misdemeanor, a $9,000 fine, and up to six months in jail. The measure notably exempts pregnant patients. The new law follows a growing movement among conservatives across the U.S. The lawsuit seeking to take the abortion pill Mifepristone off the market is being considered in a federal court in Texas. Meanwhile, Governor Gordon let a near total ban on abortions take effect without a signature. For NPR News, I'm Caitlin Tan. To Texas now, where Republican lawmakers are considering a bill aimed at making it easier to remove elected judges who don't enforce a new toughened bail law. The bill is likely to pass, as Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports. Two years ago, Texas lawmakers toughened bail conditions for people accused of violent crimes. Senate Bill 21 would make failure to enforce the new bail law a firing offense. Judge Genesis Draper says a state commission already has the power to remove judges who don't follow the law. And I think that part of this is born out of frustration that the people have decided that they are going to keep their elected judges. Last year, many Republican judicial candidates in Harris County, Texas, blamed high crime rates on lax bail enforcements by Democratic incumbents. Most Republicans lost their races. I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. President Biden says Russian President Vladimir Putin has clearly committed war crimes in Ukraine. Speaking to reporters last night, he said the arrest warrant issued by the International Criminal Court is justified. The court alleges that Moscow has abducted Ukrainian children and forced them into Russia. A United Nations broker deal to allow Ukraine to export grain through Black Sea ports is due to expire today amid uncertainty over whether Moscow and Kyiv can agree on the terms to extend it. The initiative was first brokered last July amid fears of a global food crisis, says the BBC's Imogen Folks reports. At talks earlier this week in Geneva, Russia said it would accept an extension of the grain deal, but for just 60 days, on condition its fertilisers can be exported, a part of the agreement Moscow claims has not been honoured. But Ukraine and the United Nations want the usual 120-day extension. Food insecure countries like Yemen or those in the Horn of Africa rely on grain from Ukraine. Negotiations have continued all week behind closed doors without agreement. The BBC's Imogen Folks reporting from Geneva. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
MBTA officials say they are making progress inspecting tracks, but trains will still operate under speed restrictions in some areas. The T's interim general manager, Jeff Gonneville, says the restrictions remain in sections of the orange, red, and blue lines. Riders should continue to plan for longer headways and additional travel time throughout the system. This morning, the T walked back an earlier suggestion that they would lift some slow zones on the green line. And instead, the T is keeping the whole green line under a speed restriction for now. Trains across the subway system were forced to slow down after the authority found inconsistencies in track repair reports to state regulators. The city of Boston's new director of nightlife economy is looking for innovative ways to get around the tease problems and the lack of late night public transportation. Corrine Reynolds tells WBUR she's making transportation a priority for people who want to experience Boston at night. Reynolds says she also wants to address safety in bars and nightclubs following reports that people's drinks have been spiked. A Boston-based startup behind the first prescription software approved by the FDA is looking to sell itself. The Boston Business Journal reports that Paratherapeutics announced yesterday it is exploring strategic alternatives that could include a sale, merger, or winding down. The news sent its stocks plummeting by about 30 percent. The company made history in 2017 when the FDA greenlit an app called Reset as a treatment for substance use disorder. Brighton sophomore Delmas Mayo made history Sunday. He became the first and only para-athlete to compete in the boys' wheelchair one-mile race at the New Balance Nationals Indoor. He completed the race in Boston in 4 minutes 30 seconds, a personal best. The national meets designed for athletes in grades 6 through 12. In the forecast, clouds around today, some showers possible this morning. In Boston, highs will reach the low 50s, lows in the upper 20s overnight. Then tomorrow, sunshine, breezy, highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for joining us. We're going to begin this hour with banking, what this week's pressure on that sector of the economy might mean. Darian Woods is with NPR's podcast, The Indicator, from Planet Money. Joins us now. Darian, thanks for being with us. Hi, Scott. The government is at Silicon Valley Bank and at Signature Bank, even above the usual $250,000 threshold, but bank stocks are still failing, aren't they? The bank stocks are flailing. Uh, All the major banks' share prices are down this week. But regional banks in particular are suffering. There's this measure of regional banks' share price, and that is down nearly a third since the start of the month, uh, and it was still sliding this week. Um, There's been variation within this, though. So uh, on one extreme, you've got a big worry for markets this week, which was First Republic Bank. That bank has lost about 80% of its value since the turmoil began. Um, But if you look at the bigger banks, they've taken a hit, but less so. And why? Aren't investors confident these other banks are going to make it through this period? Yeah, so there there are four main things happening. There is scrutiny, there's fear, there's stronger regulation potentially, uh, and there's a worry about a slowing economy. Well, let's begin with scrutiny. 
Okay, so investors are looking at banks' balance sheets more closely now. Silicon Valley Bank's books were not in amazing shape when its customers were fleeing last week. So investors will be looking at similar patterns in other banks with a sharper eye. And if we move on to the second item, that's fear, uh, we have Silicon Valley's bank's assets were losing money, but it may well have survived if it hadn't had its bank run last week. And so with this on investors' minds, no one wants to get caught in another stampede. And what about the possibility, we might even say certainty at this point, of regulation? Yeah, that's right. So it's the third concern for investors. Uh, Regulators didn't catch just how shaky these banks were uh, and also the implications of a collapse. And so even if there's not an immediate law change, regulators are going to be digging into banks more and that could mean lower profits in the future. That brings me to the fourth concern, a slowing economy. Uh, With high interest rates and now these banking jitters, Main Street businesses might stop expanding. They might stop their hiring, and none of that is good for bank profitability. And investors have woken up to that eventuality, potentially, uh, which is getting reflected in stock prices. People have been talking about a possible recession for nearly a year. Is this another reason why, in fact, the economy might be headed there? Yeah, so the short answer is we don't know if we're going to head to a recession. This is one definite headwind. The bond market is now predicting that the Fed will cut interest rates from the middle of this year or even sooner. If that happens, it could be because of a recession. And if this banking trouble turns for the worst, that could mean recession. There's also the chance that the banking troubles stay contained. There's a chance that widespread economic fallout is avoided. We haven't un- covered a slew of toxic assets plaguing the economy, like the 2008 financial crisis. It's also worth remembering the strengths that we have in the economy right now, uh, in particular a strong labor market, two job openings for every unemployed person. Darian Woods, co-host NPR's podcast, The Indicator. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. President Biden speaking earlier this week. We're joined now by NPR senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Domenico, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. President has um, a political line to finesse here. On the one hand, uh, he wants to shore up banks, but doesn't want to be accused of bailing out fat cats. And on the other, uh, no one wants an unstable financial system. Uh, how do you think the president is uh, is doing to navigate this? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, this is nowhere near the situation of 2008. I mean, I understand there's this populist notion out there um, in our politics, certainly of not wanting to help banks, but this actually isn't even about helping banks. This is, isn't a bailout for those banks themselves. This is about making sure people... Uh, know that the money they put into these banks is there. That's sort of the end of where uh, mm-hmm. the uh, the money from the government is going to help make sure those investments are uh, those those accounts are shored up. Uh, so it's a tricky political line for any president when you're dealing with this. But like really, a domino effect hurting the economy would be far worse. What about the charge made by some in in recent days that some of those banks were so busy trying to align themselves with social and political policies? that uh, they were inattentive to keeping their depositors' money safe. 
Yeah, and all this kind of started with conservatives who lined up saying that DEI and ESG policies, as they're called, are to blame. That's diversity, equity, and inclusion in hiring and environmental, social, and governance policies with how companies' money is used. That's basically companies wanting to be socially conscious. But there's really little evidence that in these cases that any of that led to these banks' failures. You know, there's certainly an argument to be made if you've got money that you want to invest, whether socially conscious policies are a priority if you're strictly looking to make the most money possible. Uh, But this debate really seems to have little to do with what actually happened with the failed Silicon Valley, Valley Bank, for example, whose failure was really about bad investments, increased interest rates, and people wanting their money back. We're approaching two decades since the start of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. And uh, in the Senate, there's a move to undo two congressional resolutions that authorized the use of military force there, one uh, Gulf War of 1991, the other from 2002. Why go through with this now? I know. Talk about flashbacks. Um, You know, it is the 20th anniversary of the start of the Iraq war next week. So this is really symbolic, you know, given that anniversary uh, and that combat operations there ended a decade ago. But this hasn't come out of nowhere. You know, it's been a years long effort, largely driven by two senators, Tim Tim Kaine, a Democrat from Virginia, and Todd Young, a Republican from Indiana. And it's part of a larger debate of, you know, who should have more power to when it comes to authorizing military force, the president or Congress. The Constitution gives it to Congress, but Congress has really ceded to presidents really since the end of World War II. Uh, there really hasn't been a war declaration since then. Um, what's interesting here is the emerging GOP split on this. Some Republicans are on board. Others, though, feel that this is a bad sign, especially to Mideast mm-hmm. allies who are nervous about the U.S. increasingly turning its focus more to China, and there's certainly been a pivot there. Well, and that brings up the matter of of TikTok. The Biden administration, a a, a different bipartisan group of senators, uh, is pushing to give the Biden administration more power to ban TikTok. Uh, The administration told the app's Chinese owners they, they must sell or face a ban. Help us understand what's going on here. I know. It's obviously a pretty big deal to the social fabric of the country, TikTok. You know, TikTok is the most downloaded app out there right now. Some 80 million Americans are on TikTok. And TikTok, and that, that means millions of young people in particular handing over their data to a Chinese-owned company, which really worries U.S. intelligence agencies who see this as a real threat. FBI Director Chris Wray said it, quote, screams out with national security concerns because of the potential for exploitation from the Chinese government. You know, if they ask for this data, which the company would be required to if they were asked. You know, and this isn't about really not being able to see funny videos. You know, this is the kind, this is kind of exactly the point to many in the intelligence community that they fear um, having this many Americans hooked on the app essentially softens them up if and if and or when they, cho- you know, China chooses to subtly push propaganda, manipulate algorithms to steer Americans how they want. And here's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks so much. You're so welcome. Mayor Ross Baraka of Newark was gracious in January at a ceremony to make Newark sister cities with the Hindu nation of Kailasa. I pray that our relationship helps us to understand cultural, social, and political development, he said, in a joint appearance at City Hall, and improves the lives of everybody in both places. However, the city has had to recently, how do the pundits put it, walk back those comments after it was reported that Kailasa does not exist. In fact, it's worse. Kailasa seems to be just a website and a scheme launched by Swami Nithyananda, 
a notorious fugitive from India who's been trying to evade authorities since being charged with child abduction and rape in 2019. Newark officials said in a statement that they now consider their sister city's proclamation groundless and void. The revelation that Newark had joined hands with a non-existent nation inspired hoots from the left and right. How can an entire city get catfished, Cal Penn, the actor, who also worked for a time in the Obama White House, said while hosting The Daily Show, there must have been so many red flags, the biggest one being that anyone wanted to be sister cities with Newark. Mr. Penn is from Montclair, New Jersey, about 11 miles but a world away from Newark. Some people might say... People from Montclair shouldn't throw stones at Newark, especially since unlike Kailasa, Newark is real. Somebody could get hurt. On the right, Jesse Waters on Fox News asked, no one at the city council in Newark thought, hey, I've never heard of this country. Let me just do a Google search before we get these guys into a room and make them our sister city. Kailasa's website calls itself home to an ancient enlightened civilization, the great cosmic borderless Hindu nation. I can see why someone in the urban hurly-burly of Newark City Hall who may have searched Kailasa might read that line and think, sounds good. Newark City government may have earned a little ribbing for being naive, but I find something appealing in it, too. That Newark would say yes without thinking it through too much strikes me as earnest and courteous. It's the hoaxer who deserves jeers, not the hoaxed. And if Newark is still interested... I've got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell them. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818 and 47 degrees in Boston. Clouds around today. Some rain possible this morning. Highs reaching the low 50s. This is WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. President Biden says the International Criminal Court's decision to issue an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin is justified. Biden says the Russian president has clearly committed war crimes. The court accuses Moscow of abducting Ukrainian children. Wyoming is joining more than a dozen states to prohibit medication abortion. A bill Republican Governor Mark Gordon has signed takes effect in July. Gordon has also allowed a near-total ban on abortions to become law without his signature, but it's not clear when that law would take effect. In a major upset in the NCAA men's basketball tournament, Fairleigh Dickinson University is now just the second 16 seed to beat a number one seed in tournament history. Fairleigh Dickinson beat Purdue last night 63-58. 
I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The U.S.-led invasion of Iraq gripped America's attention 20 years ago. There's still U.S. troops there, but the war officially ended in December of 2011. Today, for many Americans, U.S. involvement in Iraq is either unfamiliar or a fading memory. St. Pierre's Quill Lawrence reports that's something veterans of the Iraq War wrestle with. After what seemed like a quick victory, the war changed almost every year. In April and May of 2003, thinking this is something exciting, that things went so fast. Every year of the war or every phase of the war was very different. I think it was a big mistake, and I do not dwell on it because one tries to not dwell on things. These are the voices of Iraq vets Alejandro Rodriguez, Scott Cooper, and Allison Jaslow. I was deployed from 2004 to 2005, and then again in 2007 to 2008 during the surge. And then, of course, going back for several subsequent tours, um, you're a little heartbroken. Very quickly we learned that it wasn't necessarily a just war, um, but then we broke it, so then we had to fix it. Not for lack of effort, but it didn't turn out as we'd hoped. Well, I came back as a, as a more serious, more cold person, and I lost people in the past that were very dear to me because of, because of who I became. They're just three of the millions who served. Retired U.S. Marine Scott Cooper is co-founder of the Veterans and Citizens Initiative, which released a survey this week showing that only three in ten Americans have talked with an Iraq veteran about the war. A lot of my fellow Americans don't even rank it as important. They see like, oh, thank you for your service. That's sincere and well-meant, but that's as far as it goes. And so I'm, I'm happy to have a conversation with you. I think we'll both come away better. Cooper says he's encouraged that almost 8 in 10 Americans say we need to learn more about the Iraq War. That gave me a little bit of hope. How do we learn more about this? Former diplomat Emma Skye has the same question. I served in Iraq from 2003 to 2010. Skye had been against the invasion, but then got deeply involved in trying to rebuild Iraq. She spent years as political advisor to the top U.S. general in Iraq. She now teaches at Yale. My students today weren't born when we invaded Iraq. And for them, it's ancient history. And history is not kind to the Iraq war, she says, or its effect on America's prestige, or its effect on politics here at home. We live with the ghosts of the Iraq war, the Middle East, the changes in the balance of power in Iran's favor, and the spread of terrorism, and the impact that the Iraq war has had on America and British societies. The U.S. did a lot to undermine the image of democracy, and its own democracy has also really taken a bashing. Alejandro Rodriguez, who was a combat medic in Iraq, says he felt that. 
when he came home to an increasingly polarized country where he didn't always feel safe. Well, certain states that I would like to travel through and I would have to wear a U.S. Army shirt or wear an Army shirt or wear like a veteran hat just to get some kind of respect because I'm a brown guy. I'm, I'm brown. I have to wear something that says that I'm a patriot, that I'm an American patriot. And that's not cool. It's not a good feeling. Rodriguez is now settled in his native Puerto Rico, where he's in the business of renovating and managing apartments. And 20 years after the war, he's moving on. That's true for many vets of the Iraq War, just like it is for the rest of the country. Allison Jaslow, who we heard from earlier, now leads IAVA, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Not everyone, but many veterans have come back. They've gotten the chance to take advantage of the GI Bill. They have settled into their post-military careers. And our wartime experience is something that we, we carry with us um, and will always carry with us. But there's, for many vets, they've spent more time out of the military than in it and in adulthood building another life. Jaslow says she's looking forward, not back. And she's optimistic about what veterans of the Iraq War will do as they start to become leaders here at home, bearing the lessons of a war they fought faithfully, but mostly now agree, was not worth fighting. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. How did Shakespeare's King Henry IV put it? Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Well, new TV show puts an academic twist on that notion. William Henry Hank Devereux's Kingdom is the English department at a pretty average Pennsylvania college. He's written one novel, which isn't even stocked in the campus bookshop, and he's not especially happy in his work or life. Who isn't miserable, huh? Being an adult is 80% misery. No, I think you're at 80. The rest of us hover around 30 to 40. 30? Nobody is at 30. I'm at 30. Really? 30? Well, then you're unusually happy. I don't think that's true. Lucky Hank is the new AMC series starring Bob Odenkirk as the academic and co-starring as Lily Devereaux, his wife, a high school vice principal, is Mire Enos. She's the acclaimed actress, perhaps best known from the series The Killing, and joins us from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. The series is based on Richard Russo's uh, 1997 novel Straight Man. I recognize a lot of great actors just read the script they're shooting because they say that's what they have to bring alive. But I wonder, did you read the book too? Of course I read the book. I mean, any chance to read Richard Russo, his writing is so rich and kind of the soul of our script really comes from that novel. You know, the story goes different places than the novel does, but it's still like really firmly rooted in that writing. Lily's made some sacrifices professionally and and otherwise to be married to Hank, hasn't she? Yes, I think that's true. But, you know, often lives go differently than we anticipate. And I think up until the point at which we meet these characters, she has been happily engaged in her life. You know, she's like, well, whatever. We ended up in this little town, which I didn't expect, but actually there's a sweetness about it. We have a lovely home. I think the fact that her daughter is now out of the house, married on her way, there's a lot of hours in the day, you know, and that that house is just filled with she and Hank. And she sees her husband being more and more and more dissatisfied, more kind of like blocked and unhappy. And it 
it opens a door for her to ask herself, well, what about me? You know, I've been engaged in making sure my husband is happy and my daughter is happy and the children at school are happy, but maybe I haven't been asking myself. You came out of the theater program at Brigham Young University in Utah. That's right, yeah. Does shooting the series make you reflect on any especially important teachers you've had at moments in your life? Of course. I had wonderful teachers at Brigham Young. You know, I was restless in college, I'll be honest. I, I was, you know, at a at a school in Utah, and I had imagined myself going off to a conservatory in, in New York, and I actually left Brigham Young early. Once I got to New York, I realized Actually, the training there had been spectacular, but I think the teacher that really changed things the most for me was a teacher that I found in New York City once I had moved there at 21 years old, a teacher named Joan Rosenfels. She really became the foundation of what is my, my career now. What did she unlock? What did she set mm -hmm. on fire? What was her gift? Joan's gift is to have like a treasure trove of ways in and she looks at each individual student and gives them what they need and what the voice that i needed at the moment that i found her was because i was like a red-headed too skinny freckled white-skinned kind of oddball you know and i I had spent a few months in Los Angeles and thought, oh, heavens no, I do not fit, I, I do not belong, and I ran away to New York City. And what she said to me was, who you are is infinitely more interesting than anyone that you could attempt to be in someone else's idea of what belonging looks like or um, being part of this career looks like. You right now, who you are in your awkwardness, in your feeling of being alien is exactly perfectly who you're supposed to be. And instilling that belief in me and trusting that absolutely is what set me into the path that I've been on and the strangely diverse work that I've gotten to do. Sounds like a lesson for life. It is. It's theater. a lesson for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I first became aware of you when you were on Broadway a number of years ago as mm. Honey and Who's yeah. Afraid of Virginia Woolf. That was a special moment in my life. What are the different energies or talents that you have to draw on between doing the same lines on stage every night and keeping it fresh over and over and doing a series with different lines every day but having to, to keep the same character visible? When you're doing TV and film, obviously, every day is different. And, you know, in a play, you're, you're telling two hours of story. And, and in a day of shooting a television show, you're telling minutes worth. You know, you're doing four to seven pages, maybe, of work. And so it's the opposite in a way. It's just like looking for all of the tiny, tiny treasures on any given day and then letting it go and trusting that it was enough and that tomorrow there'll be new treasures to discover. How do you make a, a series like Lucky Hank interesting for people from a variety of backgrounds that may not include academia? The reason I chose it was because I think it's so human and relatable. I've had the incredible opportunity to play these really like powerful women. And, you know, I was at a moment where I just wanted to tell a story about what people in the middle of their life think about, worry about, are scared of, something human and relatable. And then Lucky Hank arrived and I was, I was in love with it from page one. 
you know, and people have asked a lot, like, how do you combine comedy and drama into one episode? And, and I keep thinking, but isn't that life? You know, you're at a funeral of someone you loved and you find yourself reminiscing and laughing harder than you have in a long time. It feels like in life, the absurdity, the humor, and the heartache are all tangled up. And that's what Lucky Hank is trying to do. Mireille Enos, one of the stars of Lucky Hank, new series on AMC. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. America's new top dog is, or should that be our, Frenchies. After 31 years of Labrador retrievers holding the title, the American Kennel Club says French bulldogs were the most popular dog in America last year. The Instagrammable dogs with their expressive faces and alert-looking ears are the latest in a long history of dog fashion trends. You know, 101 Dalmatians made the Dalmatian famous. Dr. Lorna Grandy is a veterinarian with the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association. She says there is a problem, though, when certain breeds become sought after and trendy. More and more suppliers come out of the woodwork. And I don't even call them breeders. I call them greedy, opportunistic puppy sellers, right? You just crank out the breed of dog that the naive public will buy from you over the Internet. Dr. Grandy says reputable breeders will be able to provide health information for a Frenchie puppy's family, including the dogs have a history of spinal problems or have had any surgeries on their throat, and that can be a problem for short-nosed dogs. The American Kennel Club has recognized French bulldogs as a breed since 1898. They have that small build, squarish head, and broad muzzle. But the doctor warns there are risks to breeding dogs for looks, or in the case of the Frenchie, sloth. They have low oxygen levels in their blood because their airways are so compressed and abnormal. So, yeah, they don't need a lot of exercise. They don't have much exercise tolerance. So what questions do potential human families need to ask before deciding what dog to welcome? What's your family's lifestyle? Are you going to be able to give the dog a lot of exercise? How much money do you have and how much patience do you have for grooming? Dr. Grandy says she always recommends adopting from a shelter. Good ones will help explain a dog breed's energy level and health risks. Those people will often walk you through it. They'll talk to you about it. You often will fill out an adoption application when you're going to an animal shelter because they want to make a forever match. Ah, don't we all. Dr. Lorna Grandy, a veterinarian for the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association. Sorry, you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This week, medical students across the country learned whether they had won a spot in a residency program that will prepare them to become full-fledged doctors. Some are going into obstetrics, obstetrics and gynecology in this year's placements, but the first since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the right to access abortion. Zoe Sullivan has more on what that means for them. Brittany Iquagu is finishing up her final year of medical school in Texas. She's a native Texan who cares deeply for her home state. 
I want to take care of Texas women, right? This is my community. Brittany knew early on she wanted to be an OBGYN. The reason why that I got really like involved and passionate is because this is around the time when the news was coming out, you know, that Texas had the highest maternal mortality rate of, of the developed world. It's one of the highest mortality rates, particularly for Black women like Brittany. The challenge that she and other prospective OBs face is the landscape for their work has changed dramatically because of abortion restrictions. 21 states now either ban abortion or have bans pending. In Texas, for example, doctors face life in prison and a fine of $100,000 for performing an illegal abortion. But in order to be board certified as an OBGYN, doctors need abortion training. The term abortion historically in medicine is any time a pregnancy ended. That's Dr. Ellen Hartenbach, who chairs the obstetrics and gynecology department at the University of Wisconsin and practices at UW Health. It would be either a spontaneous abortion, which would be a miscarriage, or it would be an induced abortion. Someone having a miscarriage may need the same procedure as someone having an abortion to clear tissue from the uterus to prevent infection. That's just one example of why doctors need these skills. But the legal uncertainty in Wisconsin around abortion has prompted the hospital to send its residents to Illinois to get their training. It's a burden. It's an economic burden because they, they, have, to, they have to live in Illinois. Uh, they have to get Illinois licenses. It's also disruptive to the residents uh, who often have families. Landing a spot in a residency program is tremendously competitive. UW Health ordinarily receives 700 applications for seven OBGYN spots. We did see a small decline this year. I don't know if that's on the way to being a larger decline. I do know that the residents that are interviewing with us certainly had a lot of questions. Brittany put California as her top choice for her residency, in part because the state protects abortion access, unlike her home state of Texas. It's home, and I, I would love to be able to, to stay and take care of the pregnant people and other women here. That's kind of like invested in me. In the end, Brittany matched with Louisiana State University Hospital in New Orleans. It's a state with an even worse maternal mortality rate than Texas. It's like, what is, what is that saying go? Out, out the pan into the fire? That type of vibe, going from like Texas to Louisiana. She's still excited to be going to a place where she's needed. For NPR News, I'm Zoe Sullivan in Madison, Wisconsin. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Build some extra time into your schedule if you're planning to ride the T today. The MBTA has shifted gears from its suggestion yesterday that it would soon get rid of some speed restrictions on the Green Line. This morning, the transit agency tweeted that tests revealed the need to keep the restrictions in place on the entire Green Line for now. 
Some restrictions also remain in place on the orange, red, and blue lines. Trains across the subway system were forced to slow down after the authority found inconsistencies in track repair reports to state regulators. Boston's traditional St. Patrick's Day parade kicks off tomorrow afternoon. Parking restrictions in South Boston start going into effect late tonight. The city's Department of Transportation says ticketing and towing on restricted streets will begin as early as 5 a.m. tomorrow. You can find a full list of parade-related street closures at WBUR.org. It's 47 degrees in Boston, clouds today, some rain possible this morning, and highs in the low 50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, tax lawyers committed to your most taxing matters. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M, and Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video chat or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at subaru.com Solterra. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Story of cooperation now in Denver. About 60 bison roam in two of the city's mountain parks. Denver also has special park grounds set aside for the use of local indigenous groups. A few years ago, those groups started working with the city to manage the bison, which are culturally and spiritually important to many tribes. Here's Colorado Public Radio's Isaac Vargas. Over the last 10 to 15 years, William Tallbull, who is Cheyenne and Arapaho, has helped manage the ceremonial grounds. He knew Denver Parks managed bison herds, but... The Denver Mountain Parks never worked with the Denver Indian community in terms of harvesting a bison or um, actually inviting us to the table, you know, with their bison program. Tallbull started talking to Scott Gilmore with Denver Parks and Recreation about that. So over the years, we've been building up that relationship by actually just, you know, going out for coffee, going to get something to drink, going to get some lunch, creating a relationship, right? Historically, when the bison herd numbers started to grow too big, the city would auction animals to the highest bidder. But a few years ago, that changed. About a dozen big, woolly, brown bison crash into each other and down a wooded fenced corridor into a white steel trailer. Now, when Denver has more bison than its parks can support, it sends them to tribal communities. These 29 are headed up I-25 to the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. Denver has been doing this for three years now. 
Scott Gilmore, who was in on those early bison talks with William Talbull years ago, is happy they worked something out. For a city, this is, I don't know of any other city that can do this. Um, who, who owns bison? You can't do something that you don't have. The federal government has been trying to do this for a long time. But as a city, we have a lot more flexibility. It took the National Park Service years to start shipping bison it didn't need to tribal governments. Yellowstone National Park bison that used to be slaughtered are now sent to native communities. The buffalo are part of the land, and so this action allows us to honor that land acknowledgement with action, not just with words. Danielle Seawalker with the American Indian Commission came to see the bison off. She says it's important for tribes to have their own bison herds. She calls them relatives to the indigenous communities that once lived in close harmony for generations. The Lakota people are, we're Buffalo Nation, where we consider them our relatives, our four-legged relatives. Wherever they went is where we went, and so they're really centric to our culture and our identity and our belief systems. Since 2021, Denver has transferred a total of 85 buffalo to tribes, including the Arapaho, Shoshone, and Cheyenne. William Talbull, who manages the indigenous ceremonial grounds inside Denver's Daniels Park, says he thinks transfers like these will have a ripple effect. Bring back bison to our culture, to our tradition, back to native people where they belong. So what we're doing here today is it's affecting other native people as well. It's bridging the educational gap for the non-native community. The city of Denver has signed an agreement with local indigenous groups to continue transferring bison to native communities through at least 2030. For NPR News, I'm Isaac Vargas in Denver. Social media can be big business, and not just for TikTok and YouTube. The people who make videos can earn a lot. But the stars are children, and the parents run the account. Who gets to benefit? Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha, the architect of a new bill to protect a new kind of child star. You can tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. William Waters finds a missing piece of life when he meets Julia Padovano in college and marries into a family of four sisters. He'd grown up feeling that his parents had only one child. And in Anne Napolitano's memorable phrase, it wasn't him. The embrace of sisters, often comforting, sometimes stifling, forgiving, forgetting, and going on, is at the heart of her new novel, Hello, Beautiful. And Napolitano, author of the bestseller Dear Edward, which is now an Apple Plus series, joins us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about William. He has to grow up with a darkness, doesn't he? Yes. His three-year-old sister dies the same week that he is born. And his parents are so heartbroken that when they look at him, they only feel their own pain. So they really stop looking at him. And he has very little attention and love for the rest of his childhood does eventually find achievement and recognition in basketball. He winds up going to Northwestern, where he meets Julia. Uh, I will note the Wildcats are better than usual this year, but they're not a traditional basketball powerhouse, let's put it that way. Does knowing Julia give him another kind of recognition, too? 
Yes, she is a powerful, ambitious, self-directed, vibrant young woman. And she sort of takes him in hand and tells him what to do because she has strong aspirations for her own life. She has an idea of the husband that she wants to be married to. And he fits the mold. And he's also very moldable. And he's very happy to be told what to do. So it works out well initially for both of them. And tell us about her sisters. You have uh, Sylvie and then uh, and then the twins, Cecilia and Emmeline. Yes. Um, so Sylvie's only 10 months younger than Julia, and she is a voracious reader, and she works in the local library putting herself through college. And she is a dreamer. She has this dream that she's going to find the great love affair, a sort of once-in-a-generation love story, and that is her dream. Um, and Emmeline and Cecilia are a little bit younger, and they are twins. And Cecilia is an artist, and Emmeline is a nurturer. She takes care of everybody. How challenging is it to write four characters who appear again and again and make them different enough to tell apart, but also enough alike to be sisters? Well, that's part of what fascinates me about sisters. Um, when I was growing up, my best friend Leah, her mother had six sisters that would come in and out of the house all the time, and they had slightly different versions of the same face. And they seemed more themselves when they were in the same room together than they did when they were separated. And that was completely fascinating to me. So it was really like an exciting and fun challenge to create sisters who were that close, but also very strongly rooted in their own selves. Um, I think that's a challenging relationship because you're so close and so strong-willed and so different, but it can be like the deepest and most rewarding of relationships, you know, unless you're challenged, which unfortunately... Or fortunately, the sisters are challenged. And it's perfectly okay if readers detect a debt to little women in your novel? It is. I, I actually didn't intend that. Um, it was only once I'd created or met the sisters, and they were having a conversation in, in the scene that I was writing about which March sister they were most like. And I was like, oh, yes, of course. Like, it's four sisters, just like the March girls. And Lori in Little Women is a, a character from the outside who peers into the March family window and wants to be in there. And so does William for the Padovano sisters. Yeah. William and Julia, without giving away too much of the story, have a daughter, Alice, and then a, a darkness begins to envelop William, or, or has it always been there? I think it had always been there. I think basketball kept it at bay, and he, you know, reaches the end of his basketball career, and it sort of begins to sink him, and he enters adulthood with its, you know, myriad responsibilities. Um, and calls upon him to sort of stand up straighter, and he finds that he's unable to. Yeah. How does William begin to treat his daughter? I think he has struggles to look at his daughter in a similar way that his parents struggled to look at him. I think often the sort of traumas that afflict us in our youth end up playing out in various ways as we grow up, even though it's the last thing that we want to have happen. Mm -hmm. um, and William wants nothing but the best for his daughter, but he has a lot of fear at the same time. Do we inherit only the good stuff? No. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately not. I think the fault lines that run through our parents often run into us, even if we weren't alive when those fault lines were created and they become part of our um, DNA and our behaviors, even if we're trying as hard as we can to run away from them, they are in that instance still shaping our lives. The same thing happens with the Padovano family. Rose, the mother of the four girls, got pregnant before she was married, which ended up being, you know, a wonderful thing for their family, but she does not want that for her girls. And she ends up 
you know, pushing them almost to the brink so that what she sees as her failures, she almost makes happen again in the next generation, too. How much of the, may I ask, family dynamics do you plot out, say, on index cards, and, and how much come to you in the process of writing? The first year, while I'm thinking about the book, I don't let myself write, and I only think and plan and research and um, take notes. But still, there's probably only about five things that I know are going to happen when I start writing the book. The rest of it I discover. Help us understand what that feels like. Well, to me, it's it's kind of like being a reader. It, it is an act of discovery. Um, when the book starts, William is this lonely, sad, broken-hearted little boy. And I want to find out if he can be okay after the childhood that he had. And I really wasn't sure. So I had to walk through line after line, scene after scene, interaction after interaction, and be like, is this true? Like, is this how it would feel? And and slowly that charts his course through the story and through the novel. And I'm right there with him, hoping that we're going to get to a place where he's all right, but not sure whether that is going to be true or not. And that's part of the tension for me and keeps me writing and keeps me anxious. Forgive me for not knowing, but do you have sisters, brothers? Yeah, I have a sister, a brother, and a half-sister. No matter what issues might wind up dividing siblings, is there a is there still a special closeness that just is is in no other way emulated? Yes, I think because you grow up obviously from the very beginning and you know each other inside and out and you know all of each other's embarrassing secrets and worst moments and you know each other at each stage of your lives, there's just a that's like a rooting system that runs all the way down into the earth. And so even if you try to walk away from each other, I think there's always that possibility and even encouragement to walk back because the roots don't go away. Anne Napolitano, her novel, Hello, Beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. More good news for the millions of people who need insulin to stay alive. Novo Nordisk and Sanofi announced they are lowering their list prices for insulin products. This follows a similar decision by Eli Lilly. Bram Sable-Smith from Kaiser Health News joins us. Bram, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Drug companies have been better known for increasing the price of insulin, and a lot of people have been left struggling to afford it. How significant is the news of this week's price reductions? It's quite significant, Scott. I mean, these three drug makers produce something like 90% of the country's insulin supply. And what's really important here is that they're reducing the list price of insulin. So you can kind of think of that like the sticker price on a car. So many of the proposed solutions for high insulin prices in recent years have centered on capping insurance co-payments, but that's really only effective if you have insurance. People who are uninsured are the most vulnerable when list prices are high, and insulin list prices rose over a thousand percent in the past 30 years. And when people can't afford that price tag, that's that's what becomes dangerous and even deadly. Over the years of covering insulin prices, Bram, you have reported on a number of heartbreaking cases, and I, I recall especially one woman who lost her 26-year-old son because he couldn't afford insulin. That's right. Her name is uh, Nicole Smith-Holt. Her son Alec was aging off of her insurance when he turned 26, and after shopping around, he decided his cheapest option was actually going to be to just go uninsured and pay out-of-pocket for his insulin. 
but when it came to buy his first supply, he couldn't afford it. So he tried to stretch out the insulin that he did have until payday. That's something called rationing, um, but he didn't make it and he died. Nicole has become a tireless activist since then, and Alex's story is just one example. There have been a number of people who have died from rationing their insulin. And actually, a recent study found that over a million Americans have rationed their own insulin. That's 16% of insulin users, and cost is the really big factor in that. Do you think these stories had an effect? Yeah, I mean, I think they certainly did have an impact. There's been a really strong grassroots movement with people like Nicole Smith-Holt who are calling for lower insulin prices. And pharmaceutical companies have responded to that pressure in the past. So, for instance, um, they stopped raising the price of insulin. Um, they developed new patient assistance programs to help people afford it. And there's significant political pressure now, too. You'll probably remember President Biden just in this recent State of the Union address actually called for capping insulin copays for everyone. Um, but I wouldn't overlook the money motivator here as well. So, you know, California has recently announced it's going to manufacture its own insulin to address prices. Um, the nonprofit drug maker Civica plans to bring a low-cost insulin to market next year. Mark Cuban's company wants to sell generic insulin for cheap. So there's pressure in the marketplace that hasn't been there before right now. Um, and there's also just one more thing, an upcoming regulatory change that was passed in the American Rescue Plan, where in 2024, drug makers are actually going to have to start paying a penalty to Medicaid for drugs like insulin that have had steep price increases. These price drops will help avoid that penalty. You mentioned calls to, uh, to cap insulin prices. Do these voluntary drops make the effort to cap insulin prices unnecessary? Grassroots activists say federal action is still needed, and Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Cory Bush recently introduced a bill to cap the list price of insulin at $20 per vial. Um, and remember, the price reductions that have been announced by these drug makers are voluntary, so this kind of federal action would prevent the price from going back up again. Bram Sable-Smith, Kaiser Health News, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about a half an hour, companies applying for federal subsidies through the new CHIPS law must guarantee their workers have affordable childcare, but advocates say it won't solve the country's childcare crisis. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And Into the Woods, coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. Two weeks only, beginning March 21st. Tickets at EmersonColonialTheater.com. 
On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Nagin Farsad told us about a new ice cream made with actual crickets. It's the perfect dessert for the person disappointed turtle sundaes didn't have real turtle. <laughs> I'm Karen Chi, filling in for Peter Sagal. This week, we'll have more sweet and or creepy stories. Plus, our special guest, Law & Order Sam Waterston, on the news quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyema on banking turmoil. Also, Iraq, 20 years after U.S. and British forces invaded to oust Saddam Hussein, but found no weapons of mass destruction. And later, a House Republican calls for USA to Ukraine to be curtailed. And Ana Ida Walizada on her role in a new film about Afghans making new lives in America. When I knew about this story, it's about an Afghan woman. She, she was a translator in Afghanistan. She came here, started a new life like me. That was like, okay, I'm good with it. I can do it. First, our newscast. Today is Saturday, March 18, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan's home has been raided by police while Khan was on the road today heading to a courthouse in Islamabad. The raid comes after his supporters clashed with police earlier this week during an attempted arrest in Piristia Hadid reports. Security forces raided Khan's home in Lahore shortly after he left, smashing their way in with a bulldozer to knock down the front wall that was fortified with sandbags. En route, Khan said he believed the government would arrest him to prevent him from campaigning in upcoming elections. Outside the court, supporters pelted stones at security forces who lobbed them with tear gas canisters. Khan is embroiled in dozens of cases, some involving corruption. Police tried to arrest Khan after he refused to attend some court sessions in person. But after clashes with supporters on Tuesday and Wednesday, Khan promised he would attend court in person. Dia Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. Wall Street's worries about the banking system are not going away, even after 11 large lenders banded together to give First Republic Bank a $30 billion lifeline. The Dow ended the day down nearly 400 points, and as NPR's David Guru reports, First Republic shares fell by more than 30%. Many customers of California-based First Republic Bank have taken their money elsewhere in the days after regulators shut down Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. And this deal was designed to refill First Republic's coffers and also to reassure markets. But trading was volatile. All three major indexes ended the day down. Shares of the European lender Credit Suisse also slid, even though it lined up around $50 billion in emergency financing from Switzerland's central bank. Investors flock to assets that are seen as safe when there's turmoil, including gold and U.S. Treasuries, ahead of a critical Federal Reserve meeting next week. 
David Gura, NPR News, New York. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has ordered states to stop blocking contaminated waste from last month's derailment of a Norfolk Southern train in East Palestine, Ohio. NPR's Dave Mistich reports. EPA Administrator Michael Regan sent a letter to all 50 states after Governor Kevin Stitt of Oklahoma blocked a shipment of waste from the derailment. Governors from Michigan and Texas also tried stopping deliveries of contaminated material. Regan said impeding Norfolk Southern's efforts to comply with EPA orders is unlawful. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine applauded Regan's message and said the rail company has an obligation to restore the community of East Palestine. We didn't ask for this train wreck. It's their train, it's their tracks, it's their train wreck. Norfolk Southern said it shares the EPA's urgency to complete the remediation safely and thoroughly and will keep working until the job is done. Dave Mistich, NPR News. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The MBTA is walking back a suggestion that it would soon reduce some speed restrictions on the Green Line. T General Manager Jeff Gonneville said yesterday the global speed restrictions on the Green Line could soon be lifted, but this morning the transit agency tweeted the tests revealed the need to keep the restrictions in place on the entire line. And that he says these restrictions will remain until crews can manually move speed signs to implement block restrictions on parts of the line. Despite Republican opposition on Capitol Hill, Senator Elizabeth Warren is pushing for funds critical to replacing the aging Cape Cod bridges. At a hearing this week, the Massachusetts Democrats said the Bourne and Sagamore bridges are critical for the Cape's economy and public safety. Our bridges should not be weak links in our transportation systems. And I am committed to making sure that that happens in Massachusetts. President Biden's budget includes $350 million towards a down payment for the project. The total replacement cost is pegged at $4 billion. The city of Cambridge has stepped in to save a 35-bed homeless shelter in Central Square. According to a city council meeting packet, the city has reached a tentative agreement to fund the Salvation Army shelter starting April 1st. In a letter to the council, city manager Ian Huang noted that it's unclear whether the state will eventually take over the funding. St. Patrick's Day weekend is here. Irish Minister for Foreign Affairs, Miel Martin, will visit the JFK Library in Boston this evening. He's marking former President Kennedy's visit to Ireland 60 years ago. Martin will discuss Ireland's relationship with the U.S. Last night, the Celtics beat the Trailblazers 115-93. to This afternoon, the Bruins are away against the Minnesota Wild. In Foxborough tonight, the Revs play Nashville. Mostly cloudy in Boston today, some showers possible this morning, and highs today in the low 50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by IFC Films with The Lost King. From the makers of Philomena comes the story of an amateur historian who believes she has found the lost burial site of England's notorious Richard III, only in theaters March 24th. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. It's been a confusing, unsettled week for the U.S. economy with banking worries, skittish markets, and heightened concerns about a recession. We are joined now by U.S. Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyema. Mr. Deputy Secretary, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. The federal government stepped in quickly this week to um, facilitate big banks, put up money to stabilize the First Republic Bank, and yet uh, that bank stock tanked. Was that action enough? So, Scott, the U.S. government acted quickly to resolve two failed institutions in a way that demonstrated that not only the insured depositors, but the uninsured depositors were also safe, and also by providing resources to banks all over the country to make sure they can meet the demands of their customers. The actions that 11 of the nation's biggest banks took to provide money to a smaller institution was another vote of confidence in the entire system. And what we're seeing now is that for small and regional banks, we've seen deposits stabilize. And in some situations, some of them actually increase their deposits, which is demonstrating that the actions that we've taken are working. Should people be nervous? No, people should not be nervous. Ultimately, we've put in place robust reforms since the Dodd-Frank Act to make sure that our financial system is resilient, and the actions the government took last weekend, as well as the deposits placed in a smaller bank by the nation's 11 other banks, should demonstrate the deep belief in the resilience of the American banking system. The banks throughout our country, from community banks to regional banks to large banks, help provide credit to people that allow them to buy their homes and also to pay for small businesses, and that's going to continue going forward. What actions might the Treasury Department be in a position to take, however, if the situation continues to worsen? Scott, one of the things that I want to make sure that people realize is the situation has actually um, improved a great deal. Today in America, what we have seen is that the data is showing us that deposits have stabilized in our community banks, in our regional banks, and that in some cases those um, flows have actually reversed and they're taking in assets. And this is because of the decisive actions that we've taken. And I think it's important to remember that the actions we took last weekend were taken rapidly and they're taken in a way that means that if you are an American and you want to get money out of your bank, your bank is going to have access to the resources they need to provide that money to you because the federal government is providing them with those resources. And ultimately, we're going to remain vigilant, but people should be confident in the American banking system and our ability to make sure that those banks are used to meet the needs of Americans going forward. How do you react to the word bailout? Uh, I think it's very clear that this wasn't a bailout. You go back to last weekend where the government took over Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank because those institutions could no longer meet the needs of their customers. And the way that we did that was all of the executives were, of course, fired. All the investors in those institutions were also not allowed to collect on their investment. What we did do, though, was we made sure that depositors, be they insured or uninsured, received their money from those financial institutions in order to make sure that they were best put in the position to pay for their bills, to help support their small business. And I think that's an example of the philosophical approach that we're taking, which is that we're not going to provide support to those who may have caused this or who took risk in investing in these institutions, we're going to make sure that the depositors, those people who have put their savings into these institutions, have the ability to get access to their resources. So you don't believe these banks are being rewarded for bad decisions? No. If you invested in Silicon Valley Bank or you invested in Signature Bank, your money is gone. You have no commitment to receiving your money back. But if you were a depositor in those institutions, 
Let's say you're a small business, you're a grocery store, or you're a family that deposits in those institutions. No matter the amount of the deposits, what the government has told you is that you are going to get your money back. That is not a bailout. And furthermore, the money you're getting back is not taxpayer dollars. As you all know, the FDIC has a fund that helps to support paying these resources. And the FDIC is ultimately going to use the resources of Signature Bank and of Silicon Valley Bank to reimburse each one of these depositors going forward so that no taxpayer money actually is used to make these payments. Mm-hmm. So, Mr. Deputy Secretary, can you assure somebody who, let's say, might want to put $500 in their bank next week that that $500 plus interest will be there when they need it? If you have $500 in a bank account and it's collecting interest, your $500 is safe in any bank here in America. Uh, and our goal is to make sure that we build a system in this country with regulations and rules that will ensure that going forward, banks are in a position where they can continue to do what banks are supposed to do, which is provide people with a place where they can safely put their money, but also provide people with a sa- place where they can borrow from in order to build their businesses and buy homes and to help grow our economy. How confident are you that the U.S. isn't on the verge of a recession? When you look at the data um, from the last several months, you see that the U.S. economy continues to create hundreds of thousands of jobs. And part of my job is to talk to CEOs of big and small businesses around the country. And the number one thing I hear from each one of them is that demand for their product or service remains strong. And the thing that they're all looking for is more employees. Um, I'm confident that today the U.S. economy is still growing. And I'm also confident that over time we have the ability to grow this economy because of the investments we've made over the last two years of the president's administration. Deputy Treasury Secretary Bole Adeyema, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's the show that had just so many people talking when it debuted at the height of the pandemic. Ted Lasso stars Jason Sudeikis as a college football coach who winds up in England coaching professional football. You know, what we call soccer. This is a bit of news from the other side of the Atlantic. AFC Richmond announced the hiring of their new manager, American football coach Ted Lasso. You're an American who's now in charge of a football club despite possessing very little knowledge of the game. I know that AFC Richmond is going to give you everything they got, win or lose. Or tie. Right, y'all do ties here. Later today on All Things Considered, NPR TV critic Eric Deggins on Ted Lasso's third season. What creators are calling its last. You can listen wherever you are, on your phone or computer. Just turn on the radio. As we approach 20 years since the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, a look at what life is like there. The country's seen two decades of conflict, the anti-U.S. Insur- insurgency, sectarian warfare, an ISIS surge, and defeat. Some estimates say at least 200,000 Iraqis have died in violence over that time. Some 4,600 U.S. troops were killed. Iraq has also had several elected governments, though plagued by corruption and dysfunction. NPR's Ruth Sherlock is in Baghdad. Ruth, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. What's the city like today, 20 years after? It looks a lot better than in recent years. There are fewer of those high concrete blast walls and some checkpoints have been taken down. I'm in Fardos Square at the moment. That's where the statue of Saddam Hussein was famously torn down. Here now there's a series of palm trees and fountains. But the reality, Scott, is that life is still very tough for Iraqis. 
There are security issues like roadside bombs and ISIS and militia violence. There's also just problems with the basics, like, for example, there are constant power cuts and a terrible healthcare system. This is an oil-rich nation. It shouldn't be like this. Iraq has the money, but it's struggling under corruption that is seeing many of those funds squandered. Ruth, I gather you've been talking especially to young Iraqis who have grown up since Saddam Hussein. How do they see things now? Yeah, so this is a generation whose whole lives have really been shaped by the U.S. invasion. For many, their earliest memories are of war. One man I spoke to remembers U.S. soldiers raiding the home he was in, and they kicked and beat his uncle when he tried to stop them from searching the women of the family, which is a violation in this conservative culture. And then I spoke with Hajar Hadi. She's an assistant lecturer in science at Baghdad University. She told me about living through the brutal years of sectarian violence that followed the invasion. Most of our, our teenage years were more scary-like because you would see a lot of uh, dead bodies lying on the street or you would fear for your family being taken by a bombing or being kidnapped. We would fear our closest neighbors. Most of the young people I spoke with felt that the U.S. has destroyed their country. They said, yes, Saddam Hussein was a brutal dictator, but that doesn't make the state that Iraq has been reduced to today okay. Um, many in this young generation are trying to build a better Iraq. There have been huge protests against corruption and calling for better governance. Even Americans who don't remember the war much remember the name Fallujah. That's uh, the scene of two huge battles between U.S. troops and insurgents. You went to Fallujah this week and, I gather, found something that might surprise a lot of people. Right. Well, it's a completely different city to how you might imagine these days. I found lovely cafes and ice cream parlors and restaurants, and there's lots of different construction projects. I spoke to one investor who said he's put almost $30 million of his own money into a luxury housing project. I asked him if he didn't think this was a little risky considering the recent history of the city. But he said, you know, now that neither the U.S. or ISIS control the city, there's a high level of optimism. In fact, he's sold more than 75% of the apartments he's building. The city is so calm now that in one neighborhood, I found kids walking home alone from school, you know, just with their friends unaccompanied. Even just a few years ago, just going to school would have been too dangerous. How do you think a lot of Iraqis may mark the 20-year anniversary? Well, some politicians here might use it to make uh, political speeches, but most people I've spoken to say they might just use the day to quietly remember the loved ones that they lost in the war. NPR's Ruth Sherlock in Baghdad. Thanks so much, Ruth. Thanks a lot, Scott. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918 and coming up in about 20 minutes, reflecting on family and sunshine with Unknown Mortal Orchestra. And here's a city space event I'm really excited about. Coming up Thursday, April 13th, Grammy Award winning singer and songwriter Rhiannon Giddens. She's a MacArthur genius and also was a co-founder of the traditional African-American string band, the Carolina Chocolate Drops. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 919. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. salemstate.edu slash graduate. And A Street Frames 
42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. President Biden says Russian President Vladimir Putin has clearly committed war crimes in Ukraine. Speaking to reporters last night, he said the arrest warrant issued by the International Criminal Court is justified. The court alleges that Moscow has abducted children from Ukraine and forced them into Russia. Former President Donald Trump says he expects to be arrested on Tuesday. There's been no official announcement, but New York prosecutors are considering charging Trump in a hush money case. And Fairleigh Dickinson University has become the second 16 seed in the history of the NCAA men's basketball tournament to beat a number one seed. Fairleigh Dickinson beat Purdue last night, 63 to 58. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staplesconnect.com. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. A sharp debate has broken out about U.S. support for Ukraine among Republicans. Governor Ron DeSantis has said that what he calls a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not a vital interest for the United States. Former President Donald Trump says the governor is just echoing him. Congress has approved more than $112 billion in aid to Ukraine, more than half of it in military assistance since Russia's invasion began a year ago. Representative Ralph Norman of South Carolina is among those Republicans who question continuing U.S. support. He joins us now from Rock Hill, South Carolina. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. What are your concerns, sir? Well, the concerns that most that I think all Americans are concerned with and are asking is this, uh, where's the money coming from? We put well over $100 billion into Ukraine in 2022 alone. That's a concern uh, of the money that we have already put in that we don't have. We're borrowing the money. Secondly, this administration has, has always said to pay your fair share, particularly on those in the, uh, he's justifying a lot of his tax increases on uh, the so-called rich paying their fair share. As it comes to Ukraine, EU countries are not paying their fair share, as in Germany, as in Great Britain, as in the balance of the countries that make up the EU. There is a case to be made for helping Ukraine. Uh, it's a vital interest. The problem, the other question we ought to, that I think people are asking, the actions of this administration have proven to be weak. Look at what Russia's doing with shooting down our drone. Look at what China is doing with the, the balloon that surveilled. Where, when are we gonna start putting America's safety? Uh, where, when are we gonna start securing our borders, putting money for that? You, you seem to dispute Governor DeSantis though, in, in that you say that the Ukraine survival 
with secure borders is in the vital interest of the United States. They're fighting for what we're fighting for, freedom. Russia is not our friend. But how much is enough? Where's the oversight? It's our money. And again, why aren't the other countries that have a vital interest putting up money? Well, the, I, does the United States really have any, any way of persuading Germany, United Kingdom, European Union to come up with more money? Well, it's not fair to have us carry the bulk of the load. They haven't stepped up. And look, at the, their interests are at stake. Uh, and the other, I, I have to. Wouldn't wouldn't Germany and and France and the UK all say, of course, they've stepped up? Stepped up in what way? Given money, uh, given uh, military uh, intelligence assistance and material. It's a small drop in the bucket compared to what we've done. Well, they're smaller countries with smaller defense budgets. I get that, but they're they're slow to come into the table. Uh, we we're operating on borrowed money. Well, let let me ask. Last fall. Progressive House Democrats sent a letter to the White House urging the U.S. to pursue a diplomatic solution between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, the Speaker and other House leaders got them to pull it back. But do you agree with what those progressive Democrats said? To pursue diplomatic? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. To pursue them. But how did that work? Well, I, I don't think we know anything more than the letter. But the, the implication was uh, that a diplomatic solution had to be pursued before more military assistance was offered. Well, yeah, but diplomacy has not worked. Uh, they're, they're under mass invasion by a country that wants to take them over. If you look at the aerials of what's happened in that country, it's catastrophic. And so diplomacy is out the window now. Hmm. As I don't have to tell you, there are a lot of Republicans in the Senate who, who disagree with you. Yeah. In, including your, your Senator Lindsey Graham. Yeah, we disagree on this. Are you concerned that if Vladimir Putin thinks Republicans won't back Ukraine. He can force the U.S. to withdraw support and get Ukraine to cede some, some land or change governments? He will do what's in the best interest of, of Russia. Vladimir Putin is a thug. Look what he's doing to an innocent country that didn't deserve this. Then how do you wind up saying, but, you know, we can't offer any more support to Ukraine for resisting this thug? Well, we're two years, we're, we started in 22, this is 23. I mean, how much, again, what, when is enough enough for the American people to digest? And where, t show me uh, where the money is going, show me where we're getting it, and then show me where the other countries have stepped up, to, as this president says, to pay their fair share. This is in their interest as well, because they could be the next country uh, that is in the sights of Putin. It's dangerous what this administration has done to America with... Soviet Union with China, with Iraq, Iran getting together over the weakness of, of this administration. Then again, I have to renew the question. How does that translate to reducing aid for Ukraine? How, how would that make the U.S. look stronger? Well, everything that's taking place now is a direct result of, uh, of the actions of this administration. And we've done our fair share with, with Ukraine, and now's the time to put a stop to it. And let's address some of the problems we have and have the debate over Ukraine. I'm not saying it's not an important issue, but we've got to take care of America. And this president is not doing it and has no interest in it. Representative Ralph Norman of South Carolina, thank you so much for being with us, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Music of the psychedelic rock band Unknown Mortal Orchestra has evolved over their decade plus of making music and touring, but... They have kept their signature lo-fi sound on the latest double album, The 
the Roman numeral for five. The group reflects on family. A note of Orchestra's Orchestra's frontman and guitar player, Ruben Nielsen, joins us now from Portland, Oregon. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Roman numeral V, five, your uh, your fifth record. What influenced the sound on this one? Because you, you've done psychedelic rock, you've done punk, even disco. What was uh, the reason behind this sound? I was interested in the really epic pop rock songs from like 70s and 80s, bands like Toto and Journey. So I kind of started from there, you know, after a few years, my family became much more important than the band and I hadn't been on the road for a long time. So I started to uh, focus more on things that were happening in my family because uh, it was like a laundry list of tragedies that kind of hit my family all at once. And so I had to kind of put music aside and stop thinking about it for a while. And I moved my mother back to Hawaii, back to the big island where she was born. And I think it was quite a big deal for her to come back because she was a big deal in the whole world. So it's what she lives for, you know? So much to really think about. And I think the feelings and everything that we experienced in Hawaii kind of ended up being the thread that kind of like tied all of the songs together and kind of made the record make sense. Sounds like you decided to put the album aside to make room for real life and then discovered that real life worked its way onto the album. Yeah, that's exactly, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, that's exactly what happened, you know, and kind of realizing like, oh, your music is actually not just my job, you know, a sort of my coping mechanism. If I may, it's your hula dancing. Yeah, <laughs> yes, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is, yeah. I mean, it's another thing about mom, you know, like realizing that when she's dancing, that's her real self. And then everything that happens when she's not dancing is kind of like her waiting to dance again. And I think that that we have that in common. Let's listen to um, your song, That Life. inspires this song? I found a place that now Palm Springs. It's very different, you know, it's like, in some ways it like reminded me of uh, my childhood because I spent a lot of time in hotels and motels like touring with my parents because they were both performing in different bands like swimming pools and kind of palm trees and stuff like that because we, we never had any money but we were always kind of shuttling around to these kinds of places and Palm Springs has a lot of that feeling so I think that's what attracted me to it, but I just feel like, you know, that life was a way of trying to organize my impressions. Another song we'd like to hear. Um, let, let's hear a bit from your song, Layla. That phrase, let's get out of this broken place. What and where is that broken place? You know, the more I listen to it, the more I kind of realize it's some kind of tribute to my mom. And, you know, I always used to wonder, like, why would you leave Hawaii, you know? And um, I think she felt this, like, feeling like she wanted to move and, like, 
as I got older, I kind of realized that that feeling of wanting to keep moving is part of me. Like, I, I definitely feel that. I feel like we're in a broken place. Like, this whole society is kind of, like, busted. <laughs> mm -hmm. The song is really just about an optimism, like an idea that whatever's wrong, you can kind of move past it because I just kind of feel like that feeling of not understanding where to go or what to do seems to like dominate a lot of people's lives and discourse and so I kind of yeah. like feel like the first thing is the belief or the optimism that that something's possible you know rather than kind of giving into the idea that this is it we're stuck in this situation let me ask you about another song I killed Captain Cook song in the Hawaiian tradition, right? It's my approach to Hawaiian music. I wanted to interpret it like the music that I grew up with. My mom used to listen to uh, her brother's music a lot, and they used to have a traditional Hawaiian group that they toured in. And I learned about the Hapahaole tradition, which is basically Hawaiian music and sung in English. And that's also my, I suppose, racial identity would be Habahali, like half, which means half white, I guess. I used to be in uh, punk bands when I was a kid and I just kind of suddenly thought like I killed Captain Cook sound like a really good name for like a Hawaiian punk band to made or something. Great, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and then uh, when I was growing up, you know, in New Zealand, James Cook is a big figure in history. He's, he's kind of like the Christopher Columbus of the Pacific, yeah. you know. But my mom always talked about it with this pride. Like, she, you know, she would just have like a sparkle in her eye when she'd talk about it. Like, I was like, yeah, well, my mom's really proud of the fact that the Hawaiians were the people that killed them, you know? And so in some ways it's like a tribute to, to my mom because I suppose mom ended up kind of looming pretty large over this record. Sounds like your family's an important part of this album. Yeah, I guess it just was unavoidable. It's like family just became this looming thing, you know? It's like, I, I suppose like a lot of people over the pandemic, everybody, I think, just came out of that experience really transformed. You know, life starts again and you kind of like, okay, well, with all these things that I've learned from all this hardship or like these horrors that I've experienced, you know, who, who am I now? And hopefully you come out like a stronger and more useful person to the people that, that you love, you know? I'm struck by that phrase you just used, stronger and more useful to the people I love. That's what life and art, for that matter, wind up becoming about, isn't it? That's my ambition, to be useful. <laughs> Ruben Nielsen is a frontman for the band Unknown Mortal Orchestra. Their new album, The Five, Take Your Choice, is out now. Thanks so much for being with us. Cool, thanks, man. Thanks for speaking to me.
listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Child care in America can cost as much as a mortgage. Good child care can be hard to find. It's why many women do not work and why businesses can't fill many positions. President Biden has proposed spending hundreds of billions of dollars to try to solve these problems. Congress hasn't said yes, so his administration has come up with what amounts to a workaround. NPR's Andrea Shu reports. President Biden has said over and over that he wants to make child care affordable for all Americans. This workaround won't achieve that, but it is pretty creative. It's using a bill that Congress passed last summer, the CHIPS Act, as in semiconductor chips. The future of the chip industry is going to be made in America. Now, there's no child care money in this bill, per se. What it does include is $39 billion in federal incentives for chip makers to build new manufacturing plants here in the U.S. And here's where child care comes in. The other week, the Commerce Department told companies, if you want a chunk of this money, you must come up with a plan for getting affordable child care to your workers. Among those who welcomed the news were chip makers themselves. None of this bothers us. That's Intel's Kayvon Esfarjani talking to CBS News. He's that it's aligned with what Intel is doing anyway in a tight labor market. We want to create an environment that it is very enticing, where we are going to grow the talent. Also happy, Stephen Kramer, the CEO of Bright Horizons. They're the largest provider of employer-sponsored childcare in the U.S. They operate daycare centers for Toyota, Tyson Foods, and many others. For us, it was a, a wonderful gratification of many, many years of you know, really pushing the idea that employers have a vested interest. And Julie Cashin of the think tank, the Century Foundation, says this money will make a huge difference for the estimated 190,000 workers who will build and run the new chip plants. And I think this is also going to help more employers see just how connected they are to the need for childcare. But to be clear to many childcare advocates, this is like a tiny consolation prize. It doesn't help millions of other parents who face crushing childcare costs. It doesn't raise wages for childcare workers. It's not really even in the realm of what they've been hoping for. Our ideal model is not necessarily employer-connected childcare. It is to build out the system that everybody needs. A model Cashin does like is what the glassmaker Corning did back in 1980. The company opened a childcare center in the community and still heavily subsidizes it today. Employees get priority, but it's open to other families as well. So far, the government hasn't told chipmakers much about what they're required to do. It has said companies can build a daycare on site or nearby or subsidize care elsewhere, and the cost must be within reach for low- and medium-income families. Annie Dade of Berkeley Center for the Study of Child Care Employment wants the Biden administration to go further, to push chipmakers to support existing community-based daycares. You know, this might often be a woman-owned business or owned by a woman of color. Some of them already offer non-traditional additional hours, which construction and manufacturing workers may need, she says. Dade's concern is that these daycares, which are woven into communities across the country, will miss out on the business from chipmakers and the benefits their dollars would bring. She fears all the money will instead flow to corporate child care providers like Bright Horizons or Kindercare, who do have experience serving large employers. They are really primed to win these contracts. The Commerce Department says it is working on further guidance to be released ahead of March 31st. That's when they'll start accepting applications for the first round of CHIPS funding. Andrea Shu, NPR News.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Don't plan on getting anywhere too quickly on the T today. MBTA officials say they're making progress inspecting tracks, but trains will still operate under speed restrictions in some areas. The restrictions remain in sections of the orange, red, and blue lines. And this morning, the T retreated from an earlier suggestion that they would lift some slow zones on the green line. Instead, the T is keeping the whole green line under a speed restriction. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is criticizing credit card companies for dropping their plan to add merchant codes for gun sales. Last week, the companies decided not to implement the code after legal pushback in several states trying to bar the codes. Campbell and 14 other attorneys general are calling on the companies not to succumb to political pressure. Supporters of the merchant code plan say it would help the financial institutions detect suspicious gun sales. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CertiPro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at CertiPro.com. That's Certa with a C. Ocean State Job Lot, rewarding community heroes during their first responder days, now through March 22nd. For details, visit OceanStateJobLot.com. And Into the Woods, coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. Two weeks only, beginning March 21st. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and I wait all week to say, and now it's time for sports. March Madness and the juggernaut that is Fairleigh Dickinson, the World Baseball Classic, soon crowns champion, and the Men's FIFA World Cup expands. NPR's Tom Goldman joins us now from Sacramento. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me from Sacramento. 63-58, to Fairleigh Dickinson nights over the Purdue Boilermakers. Stunning, wasn't it? It was. It was, Scott. It was stunning and really annoying uh, to those people whose brackets were destroyed by the Knights beating top-seeded Purdue. Ahem. Um, But kudos to FDU. Just the second time in men's tournament history that a 16-seed beat a one-seed. Scott, a literal... Uh, The Harvard women defeated Stanford in 1998, too. Oh, thank you. I just thought I'd uh, mention that. But go ahead, yes. 
<laughs> so I'm very impressed. Um, it, well, I said the men's tournament. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I know, but uh, but I, I, I go ahead, please. You're the expert. <laughs> Scott, this was a literal David versus Goliath matchup. Fairleigh Dickinson, the shortest team in the tournament, average height 6-1. They beat the team with the second tallest player in the tourney. Produced 7'4 starting center Zach Eady. The Knight swarmed Eady, neutralized him down the stretch. Purdue's other players really got tight, seemed very aware of their seed and all the expectations that come with being a number one. Other big first round upsets, Furman over Virginia, then one I got to see here in Sacramento, Princeton over Arizona, which shredded President Biden's bracket and many others who took Arizona all the way. We'll see how Furman and Princeton follow up their surprise wins with second round games today. Women's tournament. Can anyone beat South Carolina? Well, Norfolk State sure couldn't. Uh, they lost by yeah. 32 to South Carolina, the women's overall number one seed. The Gamecocks are the team to beat, defending champions led by reigning player of the year, Aaliyah Boston. They got a great head coach in Don Staley, who wasn't happy with the way South Carolina played yesterday. Evidently, that's how you stay great, finding fault in a 32-point <laughs> win. Uh, couldn't find fault, though, with Iowa guard Caitlin Clark yesterday. She had... 26 points, 12 assists, 7 rebounds, and the Hawkeyes' 52-point first-round win over Southeast Louisiana. She's one of the stars of the tournament, off to a great start. Uh, World Baseball Classic Championship on Tuesday. Can anyone beat Japan? Well, it's going to be a challenge. Japan's been really impressive, deep and talented. Uh, Japan plays a surprising Mexico team in the semis, and then Cuba is waiting in the other semifinal for the winner of today's USA versus Venezuela game. Um, the WC, the WBC has been a hit, Scott. There, there's been record-setting attendance, TV viewership, but. One bad moment that might oh. resonate earlier in the week when Puerto Rico beat the Dominican Republic during the celebration, pitcher Edwin Diaz, New York Mets all-star closer, tore ligaments in his knee out for the upcoming MLB season. Um, bad for the WBC because the risk of injury has kept a number of star players away from the World Baseball Classic. Now teams can point to unfortunate Edwin Diaz's Exhibit yeah. A. Uh, we'll just note in passing that FIFA has announced they're expanding from uh, 32 to 48 teams when the World Cup comes to North America in 2026. I'm sure that'll make the level of, of play much higher, right? <laughs> Wrong. Hopefully it won't water down things too much. NPR's Tom Goldman, thanks so much. You're welcome. Making the rounds of prominent film festivals is a gem of a film critics are embracing. It's called Fremont. The drama follows a young Afghan woman came to America on an evacuation flight in the chaotic days after the Taliban's return. Her name is Dunya. She lives in the California city of Fremont, a longtime destination for Afghans escaping troubles in their country. And here's Renee Montaigne has the story of the movie and also its star, who actually did play Afghanistan. When we meet Donia, she is folding cookies in a fortune cookie factory. Expressionless, responding only with a wry smile to her friendly co-worker's loopy chatter. Back in Kabul, Donia had been a translator for American troops. Now she is isolated, unable to sleep or create dreams for her new life. Shot in a luminous black and white, the film feels like a fable with a heroine suspended between the past and the present. When we wrote the film and also when he came to directing it, I didn't want it to become a 
kitchen sink or very hyper-realistic refugee story. Filmmaker Babak Jalali did want this tale to be quirky. Generally speaking, I am very much interested in, let's say, understated humor, dry humor. And there is enough dry and droll humor scattered throughout that one admiring reviewer at Sundance dubbed it semi-enchanted deadpan. The movie is populated by Donia's helpful Afghan neighbors, wacky co-workers, and an eccentric therapist trying to cure her persistent insomnia. And since the main character is pretty much in every frame, Babak Jalali says the big challenge was to get the right actress for the part. When we were casting for the role of Donia, for me it was crucial that the lead uh, was played by an Afghan. Uh, so what we did was we put out open casting calls on social media and through Afghan community centers all around the United States. And that is how a young Afghan refugee came to hear about the casting call. Ana Ita Walizada wasn't an actress, but she had thrived in Afghanistan's vibrant media. Both she and her sister Taban Ebraz were highly visible TV journalists in Kabul. Both had created entertaining talk shows. Both were also highly aware that as journalists they could be targeted and killed by the Taliban, as others were. Then came August of 2021, and the Taliban were suddenly at the gates of Kabul. I was at my office and our boss came to the room and he said, okay, you have to go to your house, be safe because Taliban, they are near to us. So I got out of the office with my colleagues. People were running and everyone were scared and they were trying to find a way. Everyone. Did, did your family ask you to stay or did they really want you to go? They really want us to go and leave Afghanistan. Especially my mom. She was scared. She was really scared. It was just a few months after the sisters became refugees and had settled outside Washington, D.C., when Ana Itawalizada made a bold move. She emailed filmmaker Babak Jalali about the casting call. When I knew about this story, it's about an Afghan woman. She she was a translator in Afghanistan. She came here, started a new life like me. That was like, okay, I'm good with it. I can do it. I think when we found Anaita, it felt like a miracle because we had seen quite a few people. And, um, and I was really convinced that the ideal person will not be found. I mean, when she contacted us and when we met... It really, yeah, it felt like a eureka moment where you thought, okay, this is exactly uh, who this character should be. Which is a beautiful young woman with hidden depths and an awkward sense of humor. In this scene, a therapist asks Donia why she makes such a long commute to San Francisco for a dead-end job in a fortune cookie factory. I wake up, I see Afghans. I go to sleep, the last people I see, they're Afghans. And I thought it would be lovely to see Chinese people sometimes. You don't enjoy being with Afghans? Some of them, yes. Some of them, no. One big difference between the isolated character, Donia, and the actress who plays here, Anaita is not alone. Not only did her sister Taban flee Kabul with her, Taban is also in the movie. She plays a young Afghan mother under the thumb of a dominating husband, a destiny Taban refused to accept in real life. 
Their parents married in the 1990s, the last time the Taliban ruled Afghanistan, when their mother was only 15 years old. And she had me, she was 16. And, you know, a lot of parents didn't have the choice. You know, it was war, but she accepted every, every risk just to support me, just to not let her girl to have the same life. By the time Taban Ibraz was a teenager, everything had changed. In the cities, at least, young people were creating new ventures. They were mixing and meeting in cafes, fighting for causes. Women were working. Taban's desire to become a journalist took hold while watching the news. I was in love with the morning show. I was, like, obsessed with that. I was like, I'd rather to stay, watch that program for two hours and not go to school. It was not just about their concept or their content. It was about the woman that she was sitting in, in that chair next to a man, presenting, talking freely. Her presence in that show made me to think that I can be like her. The barrier to that was her father. He wanted his daughters to be educated and to work, but showing her face on TV, unveiled and wearing makeup, that would bring shame upon the family. Still, when Taban did take a job as a TV anchor, her father became her biggest fan, even giving her notes. He told me, like, what was the good part or bad part in the show. And that was really good. It had come to seem to an entire generation of Afghans that they were the future of their country. I saw people with passion. I saw people that they want to be a part of the big change in Afghanistan. Everyone thought that we are, including me. So they put everything in the line. And now that generation, many scattered across the world, must invent entirely new lives. In the movie, Fremont, Donia sets in motion a new life when she dares to slip a personal message into a fortune cookie. In real life, Taban Ibraz is studying filmmaking in New York, hoping to shine a light on her country. Anaita Walizada is now on a path to acting, even as she dreams of Afghanistan, being there one more time. I remember the day I left Afghanistan and I was looking at the mountain. So... I want to go back and see those beautiful mountains and those beautiful people and do something for them. Renee Montaigne, NPR News. The Girl Scouts rely on cookie sales like we rely on B.J. Lederman to write our theme music. Republic Radio relies on pledge drives. This cookie season, one Girl Scout in New Hampshire got upset with an ingredient in the cookie recipe and decided to do something about it. And HPR's Todd Bookman has the story of Sophia and why she's gone rogue. Sophia Hammond, age 11, has been a Girl Scout for more than half of her life. I started when I was five, so about six years, I guess. Six years of camping trips and community service and planting trees. Girl Scouts are a big part of her identity. Actually, everybody in Girl Scouts are, like, my best friends. Like, we hang out at school and after school and all that. Sophia hopes one day to earn the Girl Scout equivalent of the Eagle Scout. It's called the Gold Award, which is what makes the next bite in this cookie story so surprising. Sophia has become a vocal critic of Girl Scout cookies, specifically one of the ingredients, palm oil. So palm oil causes 2% of major deforestation and climate change. 
Because of palm oil, 1,000 to 5,000 orangutans are killed every year. There also have been ties to child labor, human trafficking, and slavery in the harvesting of palm fruit. Where are you getting these facts from? I've been researching for a while, so I've been getting, getting them off the internet and in books and things like that. The exact impact of palm oil harvesting isn't exactly clear, and the crop does have its upsides compared to some others. But Sophia is far from the first to go anti-cookie. Girls and troops across the country in recent years have all raised concerns about palm oil. They've made YouTube videos and gone on morning talk shows. Who say those dosy doughs, the tagalongs, the thin mints are actually bad for the environment. Yes, and I had a So one of our main things in Girl Scouts is it's in our pledge trying to make the world a better place. And I don't think that the ingredient in Girl Scout cookies is doing that. So I don't support it and I want to try to do something else. Do something else. In this case baker-owned cookies. Sophia went door-to-door in Plymouth, New Hampshire, offering her neighbors a chance to buy traditional Girl Scout cookies or cookies she would make using her grandma's recipes and ones found online. Then it worked. She wound up selling 138 boxes of real Girl Scout cookies and got orders for 44 dozen cookies that would be baked by an actual Girl Scout. But she never exactly asked permission to do this. If they do kick me out for me doing this and for me being an entrepreneur, even though they've taught me how to do it, I wouldn't be that upset. I assume you don't want to be sued. Yeah, I definitely don't want to be sued. No, I would never sue Sophia. This is Trisha Meller, the head of the Girl Scouts of the Green and White Mountains, the council that oversees all the troops in Vermont and New Hampshire. We're proud of Sophia for being passionate about an issue that she strongly believes in. That's what Girl Scouting is all about. What it's not about, according to the rules, though, is selling things other than official Girl Scout cookies during cookie season. But Meller said the Scouts have made changes about palm oil. Their corporate bakers pledge to use sustainably sourced palm, though critics say unsustainable oil still likely finds its way into the supply chain. It's a hard ingredient to just not use. It tastes good and keeps the cookies crispy. Sophia and her dad are now finalizing their own recipes with no palm oil. Teaspoon? Yeah. Baking soda? Half teaspoon? Clove. Half teaspoon. She collected all the orders back in January. Now it's crunch time, time to get baking. Nine minutes in the oven, then a taste test on the oatmeal and peanut butter cookies. Very good. (laughs) Two dozen down, 42 dozen more to go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, a lot of work. Gonna take a while. But it's fun. Minus the cost of ingredients, Sophia is going to profit about $100 from her own cookies. She's donating that money back to her local troop. For NPR News, I'm Todd Bookman. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. And from American Cruise Lines, following the journey of Lewis and Clark while small ship cruising along the Columbia and Snake Rivers. Learn more at americancruiselines.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It is 46 degrees in Boston. Clouds today, some showers this morning, and highs today reaching the low 50s. Upper 20s tonight, tomorrow, sunshine, breezy, highs in the mid-30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. And the Huntington and Front Porch Arts Collective with K-I-S-S-I-N-G, a funny date night play and love letter to our city, now through April 2nd, HuntingtonTheater.org. As the U.S. marks 20 years since the Iraq War began, two Iraqis reflect on the conflict and its legacy. People could not believe that this America had no plan for the day after the toppling. We were actually a lot safer when the bombs were dropping in 2003 than we were the few years after in the streets. Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on WBUR. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.